Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna Fleur, and this is Season 5, Episode 16. It is a beautiful day in the neighborhood, shall we say, because we are going to be talking about Mr. Rogers today. You know, the beloved old man in cardigans. I can't wait to dive into the conversation today. We're talking to Dr. Anita Knight-Kunley. But before we do that, of course, I want to remind you and thank you for all the ways you are connecting, sharing, liking. Oh my goodness. When uh, one of you takes the time to just write a message about how an imp- how a podcast episode impacted you. It encourages me. It encourages our team, uh, the little team of people who are working on these podcasts together every week. So thanks so much for being part of this amazing community. If you want to be more part of the community or just you want to learn more about digital things as you wrestle with uh, discipleship and evangelism and leadership and creative in this time, come join us in the Digital Church Facebook group. We'd love to have you. There's a link down on the profile, link down on the notes below, I mean, but you can also, of course, just go right to Facebook. And if you search for Digital Church, you're going to find our group. We'd love for you to join us. We're sharing ideas and asking questions and engaging with really just an amazing community uh, all over the world. So we'd love for you to join us. Okay, today on the podcast, as I said, Dr. Anita Knight-Kunley, we're talking about Mr. Rogers, about how to bring out the best in ourselves and others by uh, really America or North America's beloved neighbor. Uh, Don't we all kind of need that right now? How to bring out the best in ourselves and others is just a contentious time, divisive time social unrest. And Dr. Anita Knight-Kunley, who's a professor of counseling, and she is um, also, you know, she's worked in therapy, but she's also a speaker, and she's um, working with the American Counseling Association. She lives in Virginia. She works with women's community centers or community health centers. She's got all the cred behind her, but she took that cred, took her academic approach, and looked at Mr. Rogers' life, and yeah, I think we're going to have a lot to learn from from her today. So thanks so much to Wycliffe College and to Compassion Canada for making this podcast possible. Wycliffe College, if uh, you don't already know because you haven't been listening long enough, it's a school that I actually went to, which is why I wanted to partner with them on the podcast. An amazing seminary, uh, really a college of theological study. But if you want to get a course, uh, take a course, you want to take a certificate, you want to do a master's degree, maybe you want to do a, a doctoral level study, uh, this this school has a lot to offer and really like a world-class faculty. If you, if you go and check out some some of the rating systems of how seminaries are rated. It's consistently ranking as one of the top seminaries in the world. And so, of course, one of the top seminaries in North America. It's one of the reasons I chose to go there was because the academic experience was going to be so robust. And I had a ton of practical experience in my local church as a pastor and a leader, but I didn't have some of that theology and academic training. That's why I chose the school. So maybe that's you too. Maybe you feel like you're in the midst of things and maybe on some topics of theology and a biblical scholarly thinking, frankly, just like the tension of the world today and needing answers to it. Maybe you feel out of your depth. Well, that's why, uh, you know, a seminary education might be something you want to invest in for yourself, for your own discipleship and for those that you lead. So if you go to wickliffcollege.ca slash digital, the links in the show notes, they want to give you some free swag. So drop by the website and let them know you were there and they'll send you some fun stuff in the mail. Okay, Compassion Canada as well. I mean, at Compassion, the good life is really simple. It's about seeing children thrive. And I love that because even as we talk about Mr. Rogers, there's something about a kid 
at heart to all of us. And Compassion is committed to doing good each day, ensuring that kids and their families around the world can escape poverty. But how do they do it? They do it actually by being good neighbors. So Compassion works with local churches around the world to respond to the immediate and long-term needs of neighbors. And this is ensuring that children and families in poverty who are trapped in these cycles are actually met by people and in their own community. They are being good neighbors and also offering hope. So you can learn more about this movement of Canadians who are doing it, thousands of Canadians who are doing good every day, being good neighbors for children around the world. You can visit compassion.ca slash good for more details, compassion.ca slash good. That's in the show notes. All right, join me with Dr. Anita Knight-Kunley and we're gonna talk about Mr. Rogers. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. You're listening to Season 5, sponsored by Compassion Canada and Wycliffe College. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Dr. Anita, <laughs> welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm uh, so glad to have you on the podcast today talking Mr. Rogers. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. I greatly appreciate it. So, I mean, where, why don't we start with just tell us a bit about your um, your context, like your your work and career. What is it that you do? Sure. Well, thank you for asking. So um, I have, uh, my training is as a counselor. So I'm a licensed professional counselor and um, a counselor educator. So I train clinical mental health counselors. Uh, So my background is in counseling and psychology. And uh, I primarily uh, work at a university where I train master's level uh, clinical mental health counselors. Um, So I spend time in the classroom and now uh, with COVID uh, online uh, doing counselor training and then of course research counsel us. (laughs) Uh, yes, (laughs) at least some of them. (laughs) That's awesome. And, um, and so obviously you, you've just spent a bunch of time focusing research energy and writing on this topic of Mr. Rogers. Like why did you show interest in that? What did that have to do with what you were doing professionally? Yes. So it definitely, you're right. A lot of time and energy on that. And, um, great question. I always like that idea of starting with, with, you know, why, what's the, what's the why behind it? Um, and I think, you know, it, there's a couple different reasons, but it started when I was in the classroom uh, in a counseling skills class, talking with some students. And what happened was, um, I showed them a video clip and, and I don't know if you've seen this one, but there's a clip and it's out there on YouTube where Senator Pastore is uh, talking with Mr. Rogers or Mr. Rogers is there at the Senate subcommittee hearing in order to advocate for public television because the funding was going to potentially be cut and rerouted to uh, other efforts. And uh, Mr. Rogers was there to make a case to to keep his uh, show and his, his program and PBS, you know, on the air. And so 
one of the things that happened is he had to address the senator and the senator was clearly irritated, kind of in a hurry. Uh, and he was a self-proclaimed pretty gruff guy. And so, uh, but Mr. Rogers was very mellow, very disarming, uh, very kind. He came in and said, well, I, you know, I had this long statement that would take me 15 minutes to read, so I won't do that. And instead I'll trust that you, you'll do what you've said and that you will read it because trust is one of the important things that uh, children learn with family. And so the Senator said, Oh, I want to make you happy if I, if you read it. <laughs> and Mr. Rogers said, no, no, that's okay. I'll just like to talk about it if that's okay with you. So he was, he didn't become defensive. Mm. Uh, he, he just was very gentle. And by the end of that conversation, Mr. Rogers really turned Senator Pastore uh, from an adversary to an ally. And by the end of it, uh, Senator Pastore was asking questions. He'd become inquisitive. You know, tell me more about your program. Where can I, how can I watch it? When does it come on? And at the end of the, the discussion, and this was about a seven minute interchange, he said, I think it's wonderful. He said he had he had goosebumps and he said, Rogers, you just earned the twenty million dollars. Hmm. <laughs> and in again, he was a self-proclaimed pretty, pretty tough guy. So this was pretty amazing that in that seven-minute interchange, he had that tremendous effect. So I showed this clip to my class and uh, I asked the students, you know, what was it like for you guys to see this? And then um at the end, Mr. Rogers had shared the lyrics to a song that came from a little boy called What Do You Do With the Mad That You Feel? Mm-hmm. And when you feel so mad, you could bite. The whole wide world seems oh so wrong. Nothing you do feels very right. Uh, do you round up friends for a game of tag and see how fast you go? Um, do you pound some clay or some dough? Um, it's good to be able to stop uh, towards the end of the song. It's good to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and do something else instead and think this song. And so, you know, you could hear the undercurrent of Pastore's irritation, but Mr. Rogers was sort of doing this parallel process where he was talking about the emotion and how to regulate it and how he was giving children this tool. And he just deeply resonated with Pastore. And so one of my students said, well, the kids I work with at inner city schools, in inner city schools, they don't have a Mr. Rogers. They don't have anyone to um, help them regulate their emotions. So they turn to violence. Hmm. And boy, that really stuck with me. And I kept thinking about that. And I kept thinking, well, no, we we have to keep those lessons that he taught alive and share them with the next generation and and be your own kind of Mr. Rogers in your neighborhood. And he he left so many lessons. And so uh, that was really the beginning of that journey, that uh, transformative quest, really, to uncover how Mr. Rogers made such an effect and be able to distill it into key principles that counselors and other helpers can put into practice. Wow. And so it was sort of this classroom conversation that ended up into a full, almost like a research project for you into who yes. is Mr. Rogers or what is it? And you write in this book, you, I'm, I mean, there's so much to the book, uh, but uh, you talk about these sort of secrets or principles of how Mr. Rogers went about life. And I want to dive into a few of those. You know, I want to talk more a little bit about, um, you know, listening and validating feelings and empathy and all this kind of stuff. But 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 in his own day, I mean, when we go back to that time when he was being interviewed at Congress or whatever it was, uh, what was unique about him in the kids' landscape even then? Like, um, 
what was he doing or trying to present to the world that was so contrary to, I guess, what everybody else was doing? Yes, that's really an important point to think about because he was swimming upstream from the beginning, providing something very different uh, from what other media was providing. He actually got into television because he came home from college on a break and TV had just come out and he saw people throwing pies in each other's faces. And he hated seeing people demean each other. And so he wanted to create something positive that would make goodness attractive. And so what he provided was educational television that was developmentally appropriate for children. And what a lot of people may not be aware of is that, you know, Mr. Rogers went to seminary on his lunch breaks. And while he was in seminary, he met Dr. Margaret McFarland, who uh, became his mentor. She supervised uh, a counseling class that Mm. he took. And for the rest of her career, for the rest of her life, she met... um, he met with her on a regular basis to get consultation and feedback uh, in his programming. And Margaret McFarlane, although we don't we don't read or hear a lot about her, she didn't do a lot of writing, uh, but she worked together with Benjamin Spock and Eric Erickson, two of the greatest developmental psychologists that that we hear about at uh, the University of Pittsburgh and a child development center. And so she. So Mr. Rogers was influenced by some of the greats of his time, and uh, Dr. McFarland was known as somebody who really understood children. And so he brought that awareness and that intentionality into his programming. And one of the things that he even said to Pastore was that he left children with an expression of care. Mm. And in nearly every program, he wanted to tell children um, you know, you've made this day a special day just by your being you. There's no one else in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. And so he brought expressions of care. He brought developmentally appropriate messages. He was willing to talk about the hard things. Uh, he would even talk with kids about divorce and uh, death of a pet and, uh, you know, things that may be uncomfortable. And he even talked about the fact that some adults were uncomfortable with him, like when Mr. McFeely quickly left the room after he brought up the topic of divorce. And he said, oh, he didn't seem, you know, something like he didn't seem like he wanted to talk about that. He left pretty quickly. And he was just willing to to go there. He even uh, let a whole minute pass just so kids could see how long one minute was uh, on television. Wow. And and was willing to have that quiet silence or something. What did he do with that minute? Yeah. Yeah. Just, um, just that quietness, just of watching to see how, how long, what does a minute really feel like? How long does it take for a minute to pass? Wow. I mean, in television time, that sounds like an hour, uh, you know, a minute of silence, a minute of nothing is like, feels got to feel like an hour. I mean, do you feel like the stuff that he was doing when we look at it today, I mean, we look at the literal, literal program, it feels incredibly slow. Uh, it feels mm-hmm. quiet, um, mm-hmm. lame, boring. I don't know what the word. We, I mean, we all love Mr. Rogers, but then the medium that he was using, um, did it feel that way at the time? Or is it that like, we're looking at it in 2020, we're all hyped up and anxious and it's doesn't fit today anymore. Or did was it the same then he was intentionally trying to slow it down? Yes. He liked to take his time. He even wrote a song about that, that he liked to take his time. <laughs> Um, so it was intentionally uh, a bit slower than uh, some of what we see today and what we saw even then. And he did mention um, that 
um, cartoons he, he considered animated bombardment and he didn't want kids to be bombarded. And interestingly, some of the research shows that children that watch Mr. Rogers tended to have longer attention spans and greater levels of creativity, which made sense because oh. he uh, took kids to the land of make-believe in every session and, and encouraged creativity. And in it, he did have to kind of stick with him through that intentionality. Um, but it was a pace that kids could keep up with. Uh, in many ways. So I think you're right. I think he did uh, move intentionally slowly and that's a little bit different from what we see. Yeah. Well, and the whole theme for him was, you know, this, I love you. I like you. I love you. And I, I like you just the way you are. Um, you know, yes. a lot of criticism of my generation would be this, the word entitled, um, that we've mm -hmm. like the classic critique of the participation trophy, uh, that we've been raised and coddled. Like too many people have said that they like us just the way we are, which leads to a lack of self-improvement. But what do you think about that? What I mean, in your professional opinion, I mean, obviously Rogers wasn't doing that. He was affirming people as they were. Um, so all to say, I think that sometimes we fear if we affirm people where they are, they're going to become lazy or entitled in that place. So how do you balance that with growth? Yeah, that's an important question. I think that is uh, one area where people have been critical of some of what he's done. But I think it's important to remember uh, from a psychological perspective, when we look at attachment theory, uh, there's something that, uh, you know, John Bowlby was the father of attachment theory. And um, just to kind of simplify it, you could also think of it as relationship theory. And it looks at how a child interacts with their first primary caregivers and develop certain relational styles. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's four different styles um, that are, they're unpacked in the text, but the secure style is what we really want because that's where you're willing to move towards someone else and engage with them and uh, talk with them and be open and be vulnerable. Um, and there's, it's easy to trust. Uh, and if a child grows up with responsive caregivers and is able to make sense of their experience, then they may grow into an adult that's able to do that. And uh, if there's other problems that come into play, so maybe, um, there's abuse or there is neglect or uh, maybe one of the parents is sick or depressed and, and maybe not as available Then some other uh, attachment uh, or, or relationship styles, if you will, could uh, occur. But if a, if a child is feeling secure or even an adult, uh, Bob Marvin, a student of uh, Mary Ainsworth, who was John Bowlby's relationship or uh, research partner. So if you think of John Bowlby as the father of attachment, then Mary Ainsworth as his partner, and then Bob Marvin studying under uh, Ainsworth. He was sort of the uh, grand, grand academic grandson of uh, John Bowlby, if you will. Right. So yeah. pretty close to the, the originator of this whole body of amazing research. And he developed something called the circle of security that really explains what you're asking about very well. And on, on the left side of the circle, you can imagine a set of hands, just these nesting hands that represent that safe haven, that secure base. And when a child is feeling safe and secure, they launch out of those hands into the environment and they explore and they engage and they interact. And um, there was a there's a comic about this uh, that talks about the fully charged indicator wiggle. You know how if you're holding a baby and they, they become very comfortable and secure, then they they start kind of wiggling. They want to go explore, right? That's that exploration. And so 
when someone's feeling secure, feeling loved, feeling valued, feeling accepted just the way they are, their attachment system can shut off and their exploration system can turn on Mm. and they can go out and explore the world, engage with neighbors, uh, collaborate, do things. But when they feel threatened, maybe they don't feel safe or they feel misunderstood or hurt or something else. Then, um, they go to what, um, Dr. Marvin calls the bottom side of the circle. And that's where they take refuge in an attachment figure. That's where they want to uh, go home and feel safe and feel comforted uh, by that attachment figure. So helping people to feel accepted as they are can help them to turn off that radar, to shut down the radar, shut down the attachment system, and to be able to do what they would do if they felt secure and engage with others in a secure way and and engage with neighbors in a positive way. So um, really, from a psychological perspective, that has the capacity to uh, allow people emotionally to be able to engage more. Mm. Well, and you, and you referenced it just here, this word neighbor um, connecting or in a meaningful way with neighbors. And of course, that's the theme for Mr. Rogers. Won't you be right. a neighbor? You know, the, the way of Jesus, yes. love thy neighbor. Uh, yes. You know, what is it about that? I mean, maybe the, the idea of a neighbor, we're not talking about a friend or we're not talking about a colleague or a family member. We're, the, the word neighbor, why is it that that can, resonates with us? Why is it that it, Rogers chose to talk about it in that way? Yeah, it's really a unique word, isn't it? If you think about uh, what Mr. Rogers did on his show, he I think one thing that really addresses it well is the picture that comes to my mind is seeing him in his pool with Officer Clemens. Um, there was a time when racism was was running high in the U.S. and people were actually um, chasing African Americans out of pools uh, with chemicals. And Mr. Rogers, again, willing to be different and swim upstream, uh, had invited Officer Clements to be uh, a star on his show, uh, if you will, uh, a recurring uh, African American male to uh, be cast in an authority role as a, as a police officer in his program. And not only that, but then he invited him to come swimming, so to speak, in his pool, um, which was a, you know, a direct uh, contrast to what was being shown on television. And even though it was, um, you know, his, his television house, he didn't have a, a full, you know, in-ground pool or anything, but he had this blue kitty pool and he was able to invite Officer Clements over to soak his feet. And when Officer Clements didn't have a towel, he said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll dry your feet, you know, and, and you saw him, if as from a Christian perspective, you can catch that parallelism from Jesus at the Last Supper, washing his disciples' feet. But I think Mr. Rogers was making a clear point that Everyone was his neighbor, and it didn't matter what their racial background was. It didn't matter um, what society was saying. Um, And I think his faith was an important part of that, of knowing that people are created in the image of God and should be treated as such. And so he he cared about all of his neighbors. He called his viewers his television neighbors. Yeah, well, and I love that, his television neighbors, um, because, you know, we're, of course, (laughs) in a time racism— is not far from our conversations today as it was, you know, in, unfortunately in Mr. Rogers day, the issues are the same, I mean, but different, but mainly the same. 
um, you know, race, racism, sexism, ableism, the way he engaged with people of disabilities, Mm -hmm. you know, when I think of the scene of him with a boy in a wheelchair and the boy's explaining he uses the wheelchair and how he's the one who controls it. Like the wheelchair is cool, but the boy is the one who actually controls it and honors his, his abilities and his, you know, his skill in that. I mean, it's just this amazing thing. Um, (laughs) and you know what? I, I just have to say, I love that scene with Jeffrey Erlinger where he affirms him for using the wheelchair and for being able to explain what his condition is. And, you know, he made such a profound effect on Jeffrey that uh, over a decade later, when Mr. Rogers was being inducted in the Television Hall of Fame, uh, a much older Jeffrey Erlinger and a much older Mr. Fred Rogers uh, were there. And, and Jeffrey Erlinger surprised him, was in his wheelchair on the stage. Oh, cool. And when Mr. Rogers went up to get his award, he he was shocked. He He jumped up and gave Jeffrey a hug. And when Jeffrey presented the award, he basically told him, you know, I'm here to say on behalf of children all across America, you know, that, that something along the lines of basically we knew you really did like us just the way we are. Wow. And, uh, and and to thank him for that. So, you know, he made quite an impression on, on Jeffrey. Mm-hmm. And I think that also encapsulates that effect, that, that sort of Mr. Rogers effect, if you will, the way he was able to impact people. Yeah, there's a quote in your book that says from someone who says, I'm not a religious person, but I consider Mr. Rogers a saint. Just he had this ability to Amen. break through barriers that you didn't have to believe the Jesus stuff to ad- admire his amazing life and the values that he was trying to bring to the world. Now there's this other piece of him that I think is so timely for today. I mean, the culture, the climate, the the volatility that we live in, especially on the internet these days, which is something we don't talk about, but we have self-regulation. Um, he had this yes. amazing ability to acknowledge emotion and control himself. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Oh, he was a genius of emotional intelligence. And I'm so glad you you bring that up because there's a couple different models in the psychological literature on emotional intelligence and the leadership literature. One of them is the ability-based model that can be conceptualized kind of like a pyramid where at the top of the pyramid, you have the ability to regulate emotion in yourself and others. So there's this hierarchy of skills that starts with being able to identify emotions and facial expressions and being able to use them to facilitate thinking then to understand them and then to regulate them uh, in the self and others. And then there's a trait-based model that looks at 15 different traits, including empathy and optimism uh, and other things that are associated with emotional intelligence. But Mr. Rogers, he learned from his mentor, Dr. Margaret McFarlane, the secret for how to uh, deal with feelings. And one of the things that she taught him was that anything that's human is mentionable and anything that's mentionable is manageable. And he shortened that to say feelings are mentionable and manageable. And that's what he taught kids all across America and and Canada, that if you um, are able to mention it and say what you're feeling, then it's not as overwhelming and you can manage it. You can do something with that feeling. So for him, he pounded out his feelings on the piano when he was feeling angry and and he used his music to express his feelings. Yes. Oh, he, he he would use music as a way of getting 
what you, I guess you would say negative emotions out in a healthy way. Right. And I, I do think a lot of people would say like anger is a negative emotion, but I would tend to say, I would tend to describe it as an unpleasant emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I think all emotions I and mean, what we know about emotions is that they're really designed to help us, right? So anger may tell us that we are feeling blocked from something we want, or maybe that we're perceiving an injustice. And so even though anger feels unpleasant, which which we can say, you know, feels negative, uh, but it, it may be telling us something important. You know, I was reading something recently that talked about what if we saw stress as this gauge of letting us know uh, how much time we're spending engaging with the things that restore us and bring us joy rather than this, this negative, um, force to deal with. And I thought, oh, that's a, that's a interesting reframe. So he really wanted, um, to help kids feel safe, to be able to talk about that anger. And he used his uh, ability to play it on the piano, kind of pound it out as an example of something you could do with with those difficult and painful feelings. Yeah. I mean, now it feels like, uh, you know, when we have those difficult feelings, angry feelings, people are pounding it out on the computer keyboard. (laughs) Not Mm. the piano. People are, you know, they're, they're typing before they think, you know, they're just blasting out at each other online yes. cacophony of, of opinions with very little listening. Um, one right. of the, you know, one of the things that you talk about as his uh, techniques or principles of life is this idea about listening. Um, so in a world where so few are, <laughs> uh, what, what can we learn from Mr. Rogers? What were some of his techniques of trying to listen in this distracted, noisy time where, I mean, you know, I don't know how, you know, people don't feel like they're being listened to. That is such an important question because it, you're right. I like the way you described uh, our times as noisy times. I think uh, we do experience a lot of noise in our world today. And it's 24-7. It could be auditory noise, but it could be email. It could be you know, spam mail. It could be um, radio advertising. Uh, it could be... Um, television commercials, you know, we're just on this age of information overload. And so one of the things that Mr. Rogers did was he slowed down and he took time to be reflective. He would help other people to be reflective and he would sometimes be very inquisitive and ask questions that uh, you wouldn't expect. So the scene that you mentioned earlier with Jeffrey Erlinger in his wheelchair on the set with Mr. Rogers, uh, he asked Jeffrey, what do you do when you're feeling blue? And, you know, he also shared with Jeffrey what he would do. And then Jeffrey asked him, did that help? <laughs> and so he was able to almost uh, help people kind of lean into that listening. In an interview with Charlie Rose, initially Charlie Rose was um, firing off questions pretty quickly. But as you watch the interview, as Mr. Rogers was slow and intentional, Charlie Rose started to slow down too. Mm. And it was really neat the way he wasn't afraid to kind of change the pace with people and really slow down. 
The other thing he did is he listened to Dr. Margaret McFarlane, his mentor. And so even though he couldn't listen to all of his television neighbors, he could listen to her and learn to understand the developmental processes that children were dealing with and their developmental needs. So in a way, he came in having listened a great deal to what children need and brought that awareness from that listening into his programming. Uh, another thing he did was he his uh, his wife uh, Joanne Rogers mentioned that they used to sit around the table uh, in the early days and in the evening respond to all the letters that they got from their television neighbors and uh, it's been said that he responded to every letter that he got I don't know how he did it I <laughs> I'm sure I would struggle to do something like that um, I know it's hard to even keep up with like social media messages but Mr Rogers responded to to everyone and he wanted to use that same level of thoughtfulness that they had used wow I mean even just that and I love how you continue to say uh, his television neighbors because I can for us in our generation a lot of us don't have even we don't have cable TV anymore we've got streaming services or whatever so <laughs> Maybe some of us still have cable, but uh, this idea of like the internet neighbor or the social media neighbor, that's mm. sort of a modern version. And how how is it that we can translate what he did about serving these kinds of neighbors yes. and listening to them? <laughs> how to, um, you know, another I love thing that. that's brilliant. Yeah, another thing that um, you talk about is a um, a principle for him that is maybe the last one. There's so many that you highlighted, you know, you go through, you know, you go through all these principles in the book, but there's this, this one that you call pause and think. And I bring that one up again, mm -hmm. because I think it's another one we're not good at in our instant gratification, instant mm -hmm. response culture. Tell me more about his pause and think approach. Yeah, that is um, really uh, a challenging one, uh, especially in our world today, because everything is so fast paced, as you mentioned, and it is such a noisy world. So to pause and think, I heard from um, one of my radio friends recently that it's considered dead air on radio when you have a pause. And so it's really hard to encourage that in a world that sometimes doesn't value that, that uh, he called it white space, the space in the margins around the words. And he believed that, and, and he shared this in an interview that he thought oftentimes the white space was even more important than all the text, because that's the space that allows you to kind of pause and think about what you've just read and, and make meaning of that. And one time he received a letter from one of his uh, television neighbors asking him what his favorite books were or his top 10 books. And he said that um, his, his, the first book he wound up listing was called The Little Prince, um, which there's a whole other story about that. But uh, another book on his list, of course, was the Bible. He listed the Old Testament and New Testament. And he went on to say that if if you wanted to ask him what was the most important book, he, he would say the Bible. And throughout the Bible in the book of Psalms, there's a phrase that shows up. And it's Selah, which has been translated by some as pause and think. And so you know, Mr. Rogers took time. His faith was very important to him. And he did take time to read his Bible and pray um, for his neighbors each morning, um, along with his swimming routine and the other things he did to uh, maintain his own uh, health and, and uh, 
you know, to that, that, that I think helped him to do many of the other things that he did. But that book that he read so often, uh, all, all throughout the Psalms, said, Selah, pause and think of that. And that was something that he was really uh, quite good at, taking time to reflect. And he mentioned he would sometimes get away and write. Um, he and his wife had a home in Nantucket uh, along the shore, right there at the, the edge of the island. And um, he would go there and spend time uh, at the beach uh, near the ocean. And I can imagine that that may have been a space where he could reflect and have some quiet mm. Yeah, this idea of getting intentionally away or creating those spaces uh, in his yes. calendar. I mean, if if he's as I can imagine as busy and in demand as he would have been, that he still said, "I'm going to go away to this other space um, and continue to be slow, uh, even if this media thing that I'm a part of wants to go at like a faster and faster pace." So. Right. I mean, you talk a lot about his um, his work being with children, but it's adults. Mm-hmm. It's us, us as adults who are um, continuing to be touched by the stories of his life. Um, so <laughs> um, do you think we're very different than kids, uh, you know, with the things that Mr. Rogers connects to us about? Right. Um well, my husband is a psychiatrist and he says that he works and he's a child, adolescent, adult board certified psychiatrist. So he says he works with children from age three to 103. And, um, <laughs> he, he was working with adults and then, uh, early on in his training, he went to work with children and working with children helped him then understand how to work with adults better. Um, uh, he once shared with me. Uh, and so the, there's this idea that, you know, each of us has an inner, our, our inner child, you know, we, um, grow and we develop, but uh, a lot of a lot of times when we talk about self compassion, we talk about you know how do you become that compassionate parent to your own inner child, and I think Mister Rogers was very aware of his own uh, inner child, and he even uh, joked once that um, I'm paraphrasing here, but something along the lines of the child is in me still, and sometimes not so still. Mm. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and he is so childlike at times too, right? I think that's mm-hmm. part of his charm is that he was yes. able to um, play and to have a sense of yeah. wonder in the world um, that sometimes we become curmudgeon about when we age. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the challenge of anyone who is in a creative or a communication field, which is a lot of our listeners, is how do you get back to that? How do you become more full of wonder and awe and curiosity about the yes. world? So, you know, maybe just to close us out, I'm curious to to sort of just wonder, do we need Mr. Rogers today? Or, you know, like, or, you know, what is it that we need to do? Mr. Rogers was for his generation, but what is it or who do we look to today um, what do we need today um, from Christian leaders in the world and in media? You know, I think the answer is yes, a thousand times yes. We we definitely need Mr. Rogers today, but I would just maybe alter it to say, um, you know, Mr. Rogers served his time, so to speak. He served for many years, uh, over 30 years in television, over 800 programs, and he taught us many things. So more than that, um, 
we also need for uh, for those of us that grew up with a neighborhood and have learned lessons from the neighborhood to internalize those lessons and to bring those forward and to keep his wisdom alive in our own neighborhoods. Um, so in essence, to become our own type of Mr. Rogers. And Mr. Rogers wouldn't want to you know, reproduce many uh, clones of himself in a concrete sort of way. Um, he believed that everyone was unique and special and had something unique and special to offer to the world, you know, just the way you are. Um, but I think that he would want us to remember the lessons and the wisdom that he shared and to bring that in our own way into our own neighborhoods. And that's really the greatest outcome of that, that this book, The Mr. Rogers Effect, Seven Seekers to Bring Out the Best in Yourself and Others from America's Beloved Neighbor. That's really the, the best outcome that could come from that would be that people would read it and say, oh, there's some really in, neat, intentional things that Mr. Rogers did that were transformative, that changed uh, the world, that changed people around him. And I can take small steps to do some of those same things and honor his memory in my own neighborhood and, and bring that spirit of kindness and uh, that empathy and uh, that self-compassion uh, into my own neighborhood. Yeah. So I think just really as a, as a closing question, it's, you know, through the work that you've done in this book, how has it changed you uh, maybe personally or professionally? How, how has studying Mr. Rogers affected you? It has been uh, transformative. Mm. Um, you know, just learning about Mr. Rogers, I'm, I'm so amazed. And I do remember hearing his wife say that it was important that, that, you know, he wouldn't have want people to think of him, um, as, as too much of a saint or too perfect, so to speak, but to remember that he was human too. And even though he, he did so much, like, you know, I found so much encouragement in so many ways. Like I remember one of the real uh, concrete things that helped me was coming across a memo that he had written as a creative. You know, he was struggling um, with his work, with his writing, and um, he expressed self-doubt on paper that he didn't know if he would be able to to do it again. And he told himself to to get to it. And then he came back and he updated the memo and said, you know, he'd, he'd gotten back in, into his work and he'd written some of these these programs and um, but he made a memo to remind himself that it wasn't easy, but it was good. Mm. And so knowing that even someone so influential sometimes struggled to be creative or to get the work done um, was so encouraging. And, you know, he um, struggled as he was growing up. He experienced bullying. He experienced some loneliness as a child. He experienced sickness. Um, but he didn't allow those things to define him really. Maybe they defined him in terms of helping him, uh, serving him as a teacher to have a great deal of compassion towards himself and towards others. But what he did was he was able to take the blessing that his grandfather McFeely gave him because his grandpa would say to him, oftentimes, Freddie, you've made this day a special day just by your being you. There's no one else in the whole world like you. And I like you just the way you are. 
And he took that and then he shared that with children all across the U.S. and Canada for over 800 episodes for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. He took that message and kept blessing other people with that very intentionally. And I think that that, you know, he had this unwavering gaze on what was good and he wanted to make goodness attractive and he wanted to help us focus on what was good in our neighbors, Um, you know accusing other people, that wasn't something that he was involved with. He was looking for what was good in the people that he encountered and he found it and he brought it out. And and um, one of the most powerful things I'd like to share before we end is whenever he was at a graduation ceremony, if he was receiving an award, if he was speaking somewhere, almost every time he would ask the audience if they would take um, anywhere from 10 seconds to a minute, um, to think about those people that have loved you into becoming. And he would ask, you know, if you take a moment to think about those who've loved you into becoming, they may be right here. Um, they may be right next to you. They may be far away at a distance. They may even be in he- heaven. But let's take 10 seconds to think about those people. And then he would keep the time. Yeah, I've seen it. I've I've seen recordings of that on YouTube or wherever else. It's powerful, this whole little thing that he does with that. It's very emotional. Very powerful. Yes. And, you know, he, he appeals to that part of us that he brings out the best in us and helps us to remember those who have made a difference for us, who've loved us into becoming. Um, and what I encourage people to think about is, is as you think about those people who've loved you into becoming and experience that gratitude, which is, I mean, I think I wrote more thank you notes than I've the rest of my life, uh, just while reading this book, because his spirit of gratitude was just so contagious. Um, but to also, it's important to think about whose list do we want to be on, right? So when other people think about who loved them into becoming, you know, maybe someone, uh, one of your clients or one of your friends or neighbors thinks about you, um, you know, and, and knowing that you can bring that same uh, legacy and that same kindness and that same expression of care that he brought, uh, we, we can all bring that to our own neighborhoods. And I think that's, that's powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. Um, if people want to find your book, um, you know, I think a lot of us have gone on the movie binge of the, there's been a few Mr. Rogers, um, pieces yes. that come out in the last few years. Um, a lot of us grew up on his work as kids. Um, but if people want to find your book, want to find more about you, where should we send them on the internet? Yes. So, um, of course there's always, um, Amazon, you can download a free, uh, a free sample of the ebook, um, and if you just uh, type in the Mr. Rogers Effect, Seven Secrets to Bring Out the Best in Yourself and Others from America's Beloved Neighbor, uh, you can find it there. Um, also, uh, it's published by Baker Books. So they uh, also have a link on their website. I think they offer, if you have a church group or if you want to do a book study, they offer some special discounts on um orders that are a little more in terms of free shipping and things like that. Um, but you can find it on Amazon or you can find it on Baker books, uh, or, uh, at some, some of your local Barnes and Noble bookstores. Awesome. And other, wherever books are sold, as they say. Yeah, it's great. Dr. Anita Knight Coonley, thank you so much for your time. Um, 
I'm just again reminded and inspired about um, how to be a better neighbor and how to uh, love some more people into being. So thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a blessing uh, to be on with you and to get a chance to to talk with you. And uh, I appreciate all that you've shared as well. Thanks so much, Dr. Anita. Great to think about the life of Mr. Rogers and um, just the impact he had on all of us. Next up, Path pastor, author, speaker, Rich Villadas is joining us. And he wrote this book recently called The Deeply Formed Life. My friend, Danielle Strickland, calls this book uh, the new celebration of discipline. So the new generation's version of the previous book, The Celebration of Discipline. It's because he's integrating issues around justice and mental health and therapy. He's also talking about sexual wholeness. So Rich Villadas has a lot to say. I can't wait for you to listen in on this conversation next week. Just an amazing man, pastor, leader, thinker. Um, and I think you're all going to feel more pastored and shepherded after the conversation. Thanks so much to Wycliffe College for making this podcast possible. The school that I went to for my master's in theological studies is also one I would can encourage you to check out. If you're looking at growing academically, growing in your discipleship through your brain knowledge, but also through your heart and character development, check them out. WycliffeCollege.ca slash WordMadeDigital. And hey, just for stopping by the website and letting them know uh, they want to send you some free fun swag in the mail. So why not? Also, of course, thanks to Compassion Canada for their partnership on this podcast. I love Compassion Canada. They are all about being good neighbors. So go to compassion.ca slash good if you feel inspired by compassion, inspired by Mr. Rogers to make a difference today. All right, my friends, I want to see you in those Word Made Digital tutorials. I want to see you in the Digital Church Facebook group, and I want to see you back here next week for our conversation with Rich Villadas. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world.